Cells and Pixels supports other podcasts. Latinx Who Design podcast showcases Latinx designers who are thriving in our industry, focusing on their life stories, their challenges, and learnings. Look up for Latinx Who Design in your favorite podcast platform and listen to these inspiring stories. Women, especially, and I think other underrepresented minorities, we tend to feel like we need to be fully qualified. Let the company or the hiring manager decide if you're qualified or not. Don't do their job for them by self-selecting out. These are originally live chat sessions that I held, and you can join them in the future on cells.n.pixels on Instagram. My name is Koji, and this is Cells and Pixels. Quick introduction, Daniela is a very inspiring leader. I've been waiting this for a very long time. Uh, she led teams of hundreds of people at PayPal, prior at AT&T, Intuit, eBay, Yahoo. Um, she designs organizations that are a true reflection of the widely diverse customer base that it serves while championing diversity, equity, and inclusion across the enterprise. Uh, she believes in the philosophy of doing great is by uh, doing great by doing good, and she's committed to give back to the design, and we uh, we're happy with that <laughs> in a broader tech community. So she also sits at the board of Bay Brazil, uh, board of direction directors, and an organization that is focused on highlighting tech professionals from Brazil and in uh, professionals in the Bay Area who are Brazilian. So. Welcome, Daniela. Thank you. It's been, like you said, a long time in the making, so I'm really excited to be here finally. Cool. Awesome. All right. So I'll start to warm up by first saying that, you know, you are very inspiring to me. I think uh, you are the only chief of design officer or head of design uh, who is from Brazil and who lives here. Plus, you, you're a woman, you're like very inspiring leader in all senses and like you, you know, diversity and inclusion is definitely something that I care a lot and I can see how you care a lot about that too and with the work you do with Bay Brazil. So, you're definitely a role model for me and I think you're a role model for many people. Uh, how, maybe like talk a little bit about that and just tell us a little bit of your story, how you, you land in a leadership position where you are right now as being a chief of design officer at PayPal. Sure. I think, you know, if you ask my family, they probably would say that I was bossy from like very early age as the oldest child. Um, but in, in all seriousness, I moved to the U.S. to go to, to college. So I went to college and then grad school here. And decided that I wanted to stay here. So, you know, you make friends when you're in college and uh, wanted to stay here in the U.S. I didn't necessarily expect that I would be here 30-something years later, but but that's how, how I got my start. And even in my first job, where I was, I was the first designer that was hired to work on Kodak.com. So this was back in the days where, you know, corporate um, websites were, were coming online. I was, because I was the only designer, I was mostly working with agencies. So I feel like even in my first job, like fresh out of school and without a lot of experience, I was already in some ways leading. I wasn't people managing, 
but I was definitely leading. I was leading agencies. I was overseeing projects, seeing them from beginning to end, um, which was, you know, really a gift. But when I look back at it, I'm like, you know, my my first manager, who, who was an amazing manager and mentor to me, must have been a little bit crazy to give me that level of responsibility. But but it was a real gift in helping me um, develop my leadership uh, chops from from the very beginning. Um, in terms of people management, that was another gift that come, came when I joined into it. So this was my third job. And I joined as an art director at the time. I wasn't uh, managing a team, working on QuickBooks, which is a software for small businesses um, here, here in the U.S. and I think global now. They used to only be U.S. only when I was there. And my manager, interestingly enough, um, two months in, she decided she actually wanted to go back to being a designer so I had only been there for two months when all of a sudden we didn't have a manager. And the person who then, you know, the design team was reporting into asked me if I would be willing to, to manage the team. So, so that's how I really officially moved into management. It was a small team, only four or five people. But from then on, I just realized that I was frankly much better at setting up an environment for others to do great work. I was a good designer. I wouldn't say that I was the best designer. I've worked with designers who are far better than me, but I was much, much better at understanding the landscape, understanding the environment, creating, you know, providing the team air cover, providing them with an environment where they could do their best work. And that's really what drives me still to this day is, is when I see the team come up with amazing solutions, do really great work, uh, when you're able to help other people grow, like to me, that's that's what drives me and why I've stayed in management, um, you know, for the last 20 years. It's been about 20 years since I officially moved into management. Oh, that's cool. What a big uh, opportunity that your manager gave you. That's very cool. And, uh, you know, you mentioned started with four people. Uh, what's the difference for you when you start to lead very large teams at PayPal and, and AT&T? And what's the difference, for instance, of leading like five to 10 to hundreds of people? Yeah. So on the people management side, um, there isn't a huge difference because you're still only managing, right? Five to 10 people. Um, but I think the big difference is now you have to lead through your leaders. So it's really understanding how do you get to some level of consistency in terms of everyone aligning on what is it that we need to achieve as an organization what does the organization need from us? I spend much more of my time now thinking about what does the larger team need from us, right? And are we providing that for them? And are we doing it consistently? Is it clear? You realize that repetition becomes a lot more important because you need to reach people in multiple ways. So it's not just saying something in an all hands and feeling like, okay, now all 300 people on the team totally know, you know what our priorities are. They know what we're trying to do. You have to reach people in different ways, different channels, repeat it to ensure that there's clarity. But it's really about leading through other leaders. So, you know, so you need to have consistency and alignment on what's important, but then you need to really leverage what's best about each one of your leaders and make sure that they're bringing their unique approach to the table and respecting and valuing that. Um, they're going to do things differently than how you might do things. And, and I think that that's a wonderful thing. And, and I know we're going to talk about diversity later, but that's where I think having as diverse of a team as possible just means that you can do so many more wonderful things because everyone is bringing in their unique perspective and their unique approach. Mm -hmm. That makes sense for the people side of it in terms of like 
projects or the things that occupied your mind like how how things change over uh, the size of the team or the le- or maybe even the level too but yeah yeah i think one of the things that you quickly realize is that you can't obviously be as close to the work right as you once were so you have to be okay with with being involved at an altitude or at a frequency that's much different than when you were running a a, a team focused in one project or one domain area. So it's that balance of knowing just enough where you can still be helpful to the team, where you can still bring your perspective and help to connect dots, which I think is one of the things that as, as you move up and you move across domains, that's my responsibility is to help the team connect dots, right? So they're super focused on doing their piece really well but I'm seeing their piece and 10 other pieces. And I'm like, hey, if these 10 pieces can be connected, we'll have an even better you know, customer experience. So it's really figuring out at what altitude you need to, you need to perform and then what mechanisms help, help with it. So one of the things that we started at PayPal was um, experience reviews that pretty much cut across all of our initiative, wh- whether it's like policy changes to actual product experiences. Uh, that helps me you know, get be much more connected to the work and again, be able to connect those dots. The teams maybe don't love having to come through like these executive, you know, reviews with with me and, and the head of product who makes up the experience council. Um, I think they see value over time. But but as we know, obviously, the more reviews, the more prep work you, you have to do. Uh, but it's but it does help in terms of us seeing at least the forest where the teams can really, really be focused on on the trees and doing the best sort of send money experience that they can do. Right. And we're looking at send money and pay bills and all of these other experiences and figuring out where they need to connect. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because um, I feel that reviews does help a lot to create this consistency across different areas. But even when uh, I remember that. In different teams we experimented different things like hey don't worry about presenting something very fancy don't worry about decks or don't worry about preparing too much but still people feel like they have to prepare especially if they're presenting to like vp level director level so on and so forth so i bet people <laughs> will, will have to prepare anyways <laughs> Uh, they do and it's it's one of those things right where for me I'm like what do you mean it's just me like why do they feel like they need to prepare like I'm close to the team they know me they should feel comfortable but then when I put myself in their shoes I'm like yeah of course if I'm like presenting to our CEO you better believe that I'm like preparing and stressing every word and every you know thing that that's in my presentation so I I totally get it I think that there's also an aspect of um helping to manage the conversation when teams prepare, right? It's not lost on me that obviously the team also wants to sort of like drive the conversation and by preparing, they can help focus our attention, um, which, you know, doesn't always happen. We, we definitely do take some detours and go down, I think, some, some paths that perhaps weren't planned. Uh, but there's that aspect of it, too, of the team sort of owning that time and owning where they want our attention. Cool. Makes sense. All right, so let's talk a little bit about your work as a board uh, in the board of directors at Bay Brazil. Um, I know you are building this community of Brazilian professionals, entrepreneurs, investors, and scholars living in the Bay Area. I'm just curious about how did you get involved in the first place and why do you think initiatives like this are important? Yeah, so this was another one of those sort of like universe gifts. 
Um, I met Margarizzi, who's the the founder and CEO of Bay Brazil, uh, when I was at eBay. So this was almost 10 years ago. And she, Margarizzi was a journalist who, who had moved here. She, you know, was married to someone who works in, in technology. And she started noticing that she would often get asked um, by people in Brazil to, to connect with companies here or by companies here who wanted to better understand the, the technology landscape in Brazil. So she was informally doing this sort of like matchmaking and, and networking on, beha- on behalf of, of companies. Um, and that's where Brazil really got their start. And, you know, and her mission is really to connect the Brazilian tech scene with, with Silicon Valley. Um, and it's been quite wonderful, the, the journey and the trajectory of, of Bay Brazil that, you know, has taken many, many forms and, and sort of many focus areas. One that I'm super excited about right now is a program that Margarita just launched called Social Impact, where startups in Brazil that were focused on social impact um, initiatives could apply to get mentorship from various um, various uh, judges and, and also experts. So we got a ton of applications. We went through a pitch session. They came in and shared. And it was just amazing, to be honest, to see the caliber of, of the talent, of, of the work that's being done in Brazil, but also how much were, you know companies are, startups and founders are investing in social impact initiatives. So we selected then um, four winners that are now going through this mentorship program. So you know, sometimes they will meet with a group of judges that might help them understand how to raise funds, how to go through pitches with VCs. I met with with a couple of them to just talk about like product strategy and design. Um, but it's been just really rewarding to to work with with these startups, and I think it's a program that's going to continue. So it's been awesome being part of this journey and just seeing the maturity. Of, of the ecosystem in Brazil from where it was 10 years ago to where it is now, where like there's a bunch of unicorns and companies doing super well. Um, and I think a lot of diversity as starting to see diversity as well in, in the tech scene uh, back home. Yeah, it's incredible. Like I, I moved to US seven years ago. And at that time, when I moved, I was at Google and it was pretty much Google. I, I didn't see much other companies or startup to join but now there's like so many so many cool things going on so many and design too right that's been i think to me one of the most rewarding things i was um an advisor at get ninjas for five years like i used that once by the way (laughs) did you good i'll have to tell uh eduardo the founder um but back then it was really hard to to actually find design leaders to find designers i remember like you know eduardo who's the founder like that they had uh, chago rosa who you might know was you know was one of their designers um i got to know him through through that but now when i meet design leaders in in brazilian startups they have like huge teams and there's this appreciation for design and the level of talent is just amazing so it's been amazing to see the growth in, in just a short time period. It's very cool. Yeah, I used Get Ninjas once because uh, my mom needed a like, repair in her house. I don't remember exactly. I think it was electricity repair. And I used the app to get support. So yeah, it was a pretty interesting experience. It worked very well. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Okay. So... I know you do a lot of great work on, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, feuds. I know it's very important for you. 
um, why does uh, this initiatives matter when building products, especially? And where do you see improvement over the years in Silicon Valley specifically? Yep. So this is very, very um, near and dear to me. I think, you know, there's all of the things that I think we all know, which is that obviously, first of all, it's the right thing to do. Um, it's good for business if you want to look at it purely from a from a business perspective and not just the humanity aspect of it, right? So there's like a billion reasons why you should do it. Um, and then there's this this other piece for me, which I think which I, is how we're starting to talk about it um, internally, which is I think companies, most companies, don't set out to build products that are that are exclusive right that are not inclusive by nature i think that there's just an overall lack of awareness that you might be making decisions that will actually lead to exclusion and that will lead to bias so i think um that's that's been a, i think a great way of of just starting that dialogue because most companies I, I would like to think don't necessarily purposely want to create products that are not inclusive and it's about building that awareness and then building into the process and into the fabric of the company, how do you actually then make sure that you're building inclusive products um, and you know products that, that can actually drive justice? So at, at PayPal, that has been um, a really incredible conversation. PayPal is mission-driven by design, right? Our mission is that we believe that everyone should be able to participate in, in the global economy. And if we get behind that mission, and if we think that everyone should be able to do that, then we have to build products that work for everyone. So... Last year, it was in, in the beginning of the year when, when a lot of dialogue in this area was happening, I pitched this idea of actually building, um, hiring a director of product inclusion and was lucky enough that I was able to hire Benjamin Evans, who had been driving similar work at, at Airbnb. So, so he's now on my leadership team driving this at PayPal. Um, so I'm privileged that I work at a company where I think that there's a ton of progress and just motivation and willingness to do this. When I look at the the broader landscape, um, similarly, I see quite a bit of, I think, traction, but it's early days, right? I think that that it's not consistent. It's not something that necessarily companies will always prioritize. Um, But I do think that if we just start with that awareness piece and then build from there, hopefully we will see very quick step change um, in, in our industry so that we are truly, you know, building products that, that that are inclusive from the get-go. Like this should be just like accessibility was, you know, several years ago where, every, where you would have to fight to make sure that that was, that was a consideration. The same needs to happen for, for inclusive design. Mm-hmm. What do you maybe like, what's a, your tip if, I don't know, I am a product designer or I'm a manager and I'm trying to you know, make products more inclusive, maybe they're not working for everyone. Like, is there anything that worked well for you? Um, or have you seen that working well for designers I see specifically in that area? Yeah, I think so. The, the first thing is just, you know, educating yourself and learning more about it. I, the other thing that I think can work really well, and, and even at PayPal, a company where our CEO talks about this and cares about this. And it's, you know, it's just, again, part of the fabric of the company. But holding up a mirror to ourselves was really effective, right? Because even with all of us having the best intentions, there are examples, and, and some of those we're still working on, where I'll use like a very basic one. Um, so we always have these discussions in, in the design community about name fields, 
right? And being from Brazil, I don't know, like I have two last names. My mom has five names. So, so even something like a name field that may not work for someone who has a super short name where they get the error saying that's, you know, that's not a valid name or someone with a very long name. So even these small examples can help a company realize the many ways in which they're not being inclusive in all of the decisions that, that they make related to product or design. It could be looking at your illustrations, looking at photography. We, we did an audit of our photography and noticed that, that we had some um, gender you know, stereotypes happening in some of the photographs. And it wasn't until we actually looked at it side by side that we were like, wait a minute, there's a pattern here. So I think holding up that mirror and it's the kind of thing that then when you get that in front of people who perhaps are not thinking about this every day, right, you can't deny it. And you, you have that visceral reaction of like, wow, this is unacceptable. We need to do something about it. So I think finding those examples that can resonate internally is a really great way of starting that dialogue. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And just to make sure that people follow us. Uh, so here in the US, there's like first name, last name. That's pretty much the default for forms. Uh, when we do, let's say, tax returns and all these official things that we have to do with immigration, it's usually first and last name. But then in Brazil, Latin America, people have like first name, last name, and a lot of middle names. And uh, for me, my experience is that like I just have first and last name, so it's not a big problem. But my wife, when uh, a lot of times we have issues with tax returns versus um, personal documents that don't necessarily like map to each other because in some of them they ask for middle name some of them they don't so it is definitely a very difficult problem to solve so i'm glad that uh, you're thinking about that too okay now when building a team uh, what are the things that designer leaders should keep in mind i think diversity and inclusion and some of the things that we're talking about but what else should I care about when I'm building a team? Yeah, I, th I mean, the diversity was the first thing on my list. And especially because I think it's really tempting when you're hiring to want to hire people like you because you're like, they will get me and we will get each other and it will be easy, right? So, so I think really checking yourself and making sure that you're not falling trapped to that is really, really important. So it's not just diversity in the you know, the, the versions of diversity that we talk about, but it's diversity of thought, it's diversity of communication style, all of the, the broader definition of diversity, I think is really, really important. Otherwise, you end up with an eco cham chamber, and that's not good, I think, for anyone. Um, the second thing is hire people who are way smarter than you. Um, so, so that's something else that I think, especially when you first get into management, sometimes can be a little bit threatening. But you will always be better off if you're hiring people who are way better and way smarter than you. It will also make you look good. So get over like feeling threatened about it and just see it as a good thing um, to hire people who are, you know, way better than you and way smarter than you. The other thing that I, I really focus on um, when building a team is really making sure that you you instill a sense of of team within your your um, team itself. So there's a book that I love. It's by Patrick Lencioni. It's called Five Dysfunctions of a Team. The title sounds awful, but the book is awesome. Um, and one of the questions that, that they ask in the book is, who's your first team? And usually we tend to answer by saying, oh, it's the team that reports to me. And it's not, right? Your first team is the team that you belong to. So it's actually your peers. 
so to me, it's really important to make sure that the team that reports to me view each other as their first team so that even if I'm not there, they're still doing an amazing job and, and running really well and working with each other to achieve shared goals. So that's something else that I always think, like, is this person going to be bringing in that sense of first team or are they going to be more of a, you know, individual sort of like siloed leader because that won't work in terms of elevating and up-leveling the whole team. Um, And then the last thing is, as you're hiring, you're going to sometimes make decisions that aren't the best hiring decisions, right? And it, it can be mutual. Someone may come in and feel like it's not a fit and you, and you may hire someone who perhaps isn't a fit, make sure that you address those performance issues quickly because there's nothing that will actually destroy a team than if you let performance issues linger. So that's the hardest thing that you have to do as a, as a people manager and as a leader, but it's one of the most important things that, that I think you, you have to do. You just have to have the courage to, to make those decisions. And oftentimes too, it ends up being the better thing for for the other person for the person who perhaps wasn't performing because you know more often than not they might be feeling it too, um, and and finding something else ends up being a better path for them too. But but that's the last thing that I would say is, um, you know, do address those quickly, especially when you're scaling or building out a team. Where do you think is a turning point? Because I think there's this. Uh turning point on like oh yes this person just needs time or this person needs to work on this versus this is not working out it's like going like from where we are to worse for everyone like where do you how do you get that uh sense of when is a turning point so when so when i first started managing this was back at intuit my hr partner at the time shared something with me and she said, I'm going to tell you this now and you're going to remember this forever, right? And it's like 20 years later, I still remember it. Um, and she said, self-awareness is is either the thing that's that, that's like a constant on everyone who's a good performer or what's missing in a case that you can't turn around. So, so where I always start with is having very candid and open conversations with the person to see, you know, are, are they noticing this too? Like, are they seeing that they're not performing at their best? Is there a recognition? Because if there is, then you can try different things and openly, and it's almost like a contract and a partnership, right, between you and the person, whether it is putting them in a different role, um, assigning a different project, trying different tactics that might help them address whatever is getting in the way. Um, understand the things maybe outside of work, right, that might be influencing their performance so that you as as their manager can can support it. If the awareness isn't there, that to me is a much harder situation, right? And it's so, so I think, again, when the awareness is there, it's much more organic. And usually what I would say is both sides know, okay, we've tried everything that we could and it's still not working. So, you know, it is what it is and we have to part ways here. If the awareness isn't there, I personally haven't necessarily been successful in turning one of those cases around. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. You nail it. Makes sense. All right. So I found this article that you wrote for HuffPost (laughs) in 2015. (laughs) Six tips on how to succeed in STEM. And you enumerated, be curious, adapt and grow, continue to learn. I love that one have perspective and empathize. Looking back, 
would you add something to this list? Would you edit this list? What What is different for you right now in 2021? <laughs> So this was a great exercise. Thank you for, you know, unearthing that. <laughs> Did my homework. <laughs> I know. I was really impressed that you actually found that. I, I had to go back and read it, to be honest. Um, and what was interesting was the, the thing that immediately came to mind is um, last year, the, the design leadership team got together and we came up with five mindsets that we value for, for everyone in, in design or in UX. And the mindsets were um, being customer-centric, having curiosity, uh, thinking end-to-end, outside-in, and then continuous, having a mindset of continuous assessment. So it was really interesting when I was comparing and contrasting the five mindsets that we came up with in a completely different context than when the article was written and with a completely different group of people, how much similarity there was between, between the two lists. Um, so... The, probably the one that was missing from the original article was this notion of end-to-end thinking. So so that's what I would add to it. That has always been top of mind for me, but I'm seeing it become even more important. Um, and what I'm finding is that the more influential that design becomes, the more we're playing in different areas aside from product, right? Whether it is having discussions around policy, having discussions around customer support, working with marketing more closely. So so I think this notion of really thinking end-to-end um, within the context of how company, how customers interact with your company, but also in the larger context, right, in which they're they're living their lives and, and, and getting things done um, is, is really, really important. Um, and it's one of the things that I think oftentimes will set someone apart is whether they're saying, well, the customer, you know, like if in, in an experience review when someone is like, and here's the first screen and that's where they're starting the experience, right? That's always a little bit of a red flag versus someone who's like zooming out and really thinking about that, that end-to-end journey. What would you add? I was curious when I saw this question. Good question. I, I, I like the end-to-end. Um, okay, you got me. Let's see. Hmm. Have perspective, empathize, continue to learn, adapt and grow, be curious. I think like finding the right, um, I don't know if that falls in the same category of this, but like finding allies in your journey, I think is very important. And knowing how to, you know, your allies will help you to navigate and how to communicate with other people. So in the end of the day, it's kind of communication, cross-collaboration, cross-functional collaboration. But I think that for me helped a lot to just like navigate all of this like different mindsets and different ways of work that we have in our industry. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a huge, huge fan of that one. Um, I always tell people my group of allies and mentors has has generally been, again, peers. And I, I use that in the broadest possible sense. Right, but it is really understanding all of these other functional leaders and product leaders and connecting with them has has made me much more effective and has helped me grow along the way. I think especially when when you're it might be in a function, you might be a design leader who's who's at the top of your function in a company. So your manager is not going to be another design leader who's mentoring you from in design or research or content or whatever it might be, having this sort of like network. Of, of mentors from from other functions mm-hmm. is critically important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it does give you a sense of like, you know, I'm not alone and 
there's this group of people who have my back. I think that's very important to navigate the ambiguity that we have in our industry. Yeah, cool. Thanks for asking <laughs> off the bat. <laughs> uh, if you look uh, 10 years from now, um, look at yourself, where you were, what advice would you give to yourself uh, back then? Yeah, that was a really good question. And, and I have to be honest, I, you know, 10 years is not that much just because I've been around for so long. So I was trying to just reflect back on, on where I was at 10 years ago. Um, I think for me, the main thing is letting go of, of the need to be perfect or to be right. And also not stressing so much about what other people think. Um, and I feel like there's something about just the work environment that, that most of us operate in where, where you have this culture of like performance feedback, et cetera, where, where it's really easy for you to hear about all of the good things that you do, but then really only remember like the two or three things that come up in your performance review that you need to be doing better. Right. And that's where you're over focused. Um, and if you really focused on the things that you're doing well and just did more of those, you show up much better, you do better work, you're happier. So I think it's really not like letting go of this, the sense that you have to be perfect across all dimensions, really understanding your strengths and not worrying too much about the stuff where it's like, hey, you need to do more of X, unless it's something that's truly limiting you in, in being effective. Don't overfocus on those because then, you know, it, it, it makes it really easy, I think, for you to um, put yourself down, right? And to create those voices in your head where you're like only focus on that and you're not being at your best um, in that regard. So that would be my my advice. I, I, you know, like all of, I don't know how it is for you, but for me, like every performance review, probably for the last 20 years has had the same few strengths and the same couple of areas, focus areas. And yet, right, I'm still here. I'm still doing good work. So the fact that I haven't addressed those two things hasn't really necessarily gotten in the way. And yet they weighed so much on me for like the last 20 years. And I wish I had just let go of those like a long time ago and, and focused on the positive things. Yeah, that's a very good point. And especially because if you think about research and if you think about user feedback, it's similar, right? Like you get, you always will get feedback. You always will get feedback from 360. Uh, if you try to address everything at once, you will never be yourself. So you have to like filter things and understand what are the things that will really make sense for me in my career. And sometimes, you know, it's not that team or it's not that person who's giving the feedback that's like, wait uh like expecting things that maybe is not your strengths and sometimes you have to make a change so exactly and realize if those are deal breakers i had a mentor early on and and he before like focusing on your strengths became a really popular thing he was already talking about that and he always said how he really disliked this notion of like here are your strengths and here are your areas for development because he said it's almost like telling someone to press on the gas and also press on the brakes at the same time, right? So you're not going anywhere if you try to focus on both. And he's like, instead, just really focus on the stuff people are telling you are awesome at and go do more of that. So 
I, I heard those words from him 20 years ago, but I feel like I only learned that now with, with enough experience um, under my belt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the 360 feedback, I think the, the pitfall is that you have to give both sides of the feedback. Exactly. So sometimes exactly. people are just like, okay, like I'll have to figure out something. And, <laughs> you know, not necessarily is the, the thing you have to work on. Good point. Okay. Um, and now like looking to the future, uh, what are the areas that you think are very promising for designers, especially like, I know a lot of people who follow me are younger and they're maybe like wondering, okay, what I want to do in design moving forward in the five next years or something like that. So yeah, what your predictions are. (laughs) (laughs) So I actually, took this question a little bit differently and instead of focusing on like all of the emerging technology and you know all of the areas that we know are coming up that it's much more around something you touched on which is as a designer develop a curiosity that goes beyond design so yes be the best at at your discipline but come in and understand the business understand hr understand finance understand marketing legal because that's really what's going to make you effective, uh, both effective as a person, effective in terms of, of putting the customer at the center of all of those discussions. Um, but also, you know, you'll, you'll be helping the, the company operate better um, and, and you, you, you put out better outcomes if you're looking just beyond your silo or beyond your discipline. I think sometimes in design, we get a little bit hung up on like, I'm a designer, I represent design, no one understands what I do, let me go tell them what it is about design, flip that, go understand all of the other areas and then figure out how you can bring your skills and your chops to actually add value, even beyond right that, that sort of experience, that, that screen experience level. So, so that would be my advice. And the, the earlier that you can start doing that, I think the better that is for your career. Um, again, because I was the first designer hired into my first job, I was really lucky that I had no choice but to get exposed to many other areas. And I feel like that, again, was was just a tremendous gift in setting me up to, to be more effective and more influential. Question is um, for, again, junior designers, what's your advice um, for them if they want to get hired by companies like PayPal, like Big Tech? Yep. So I, I thought about this um, and I, I recently spoke to the graduating class at the California College of Arts and I had actually asked my team for advice. Um, so I, I had like a list to go back to and added a couple of items to it. The first thing is, I think uh, we talked about the mindsets, right? We talked about uh, what we value. Showcase those in whatever portfolio presentation you're doing. So it's it's so much less about having your design work be perfect. And it's so much more about showcasing your process and how you approach a problem. So try to showcase that how you thought end to end, right? Showcase how you got inspiration from from outside in, how you looked at other industries, how you look at competitors. The more you can showcase that, even so even though you may have limited case studies or projects, showcasing that I think will go a long way in terms of um, overcoming any sort of limitations of the types of projects and experience that, that you might be able to share. So that's number one. The second one is apply, apply, apply. Um, women, especially, and I think other underrepresented minorities, we tend to feel like we need to be fully qualified 
before we apply, let the company or the hiring manager decide if you're qualified or not. Don't do their job for them by self-selecting out. So apply, apply, apply to, to everything. I mean, obviously, right within reason, but but just apply broadly. Um, this, the other thing is talk to every recruiter who reaches out to you, even if it's in a company that you're not interested in working at. Um, I would say that most of my my jobs, aside from my first and second jobs, all came through recruiters that I met under different circumstances and who later were recruiting for a completely different company that was like my dream company. And then they remembered me, they reached out to me. So build that that network of recruiters, build a network with, um, you know, you have to network. So reach out to hiring managers reach out to other designers who might be in, in a similar job to the one that you're interested in. Try to be targeted. It, like you can go like cast a wide net, but also be targeted in how you're doing that. So for instance, if you're interested in joining our Venmo design team in Chicago, look on LinkedIn and see like, hey, who are designers on the Venmo design team in Chicago and, and reach out to them or reach out to that hiring manager. So do a little bit of homework, right? See what jobs companies have opened, where they have teams, and then be be targeted in addition to casting a wide net because you don't know where you're going to get that bite and where you're going to get that response. Um, and then the last thing, which is something that you know I think is much easier now that, than it was when I was starting out is where possible, build that public persona, right? Whether it's on LinkedIn, whether it's on Twitter and other places. And you can do it in different ways. Like I'm I'm shy. I'm not someone who loves having attention on me. I'm not a great writer. So just think about different ways that you can do it that play to your strengths, but where again, you can actually be discovered um, and, and be, you know, um, someone that recruiters or hiring managers might, might see and reach out to you. Love the tips. Um, I think the personas, I think for the next generations is becoming easier and easier. I see a lot of designers actually building their personas on TikTok and it's uh, just new media is booming on that side. I do love the idea of applying for jobs that you're not totally like fully, uh, you know, don't check all the boxes because that's sometimes the only way to grow and get to the next level um, besides promotion. And... For me, I think I learned this very recently. I, I didn't do that. Um, was very afraid to apply for jobs that I was not qualified in all the checkboxes, you know. So very good tip. Well, unfortunately, we are getting to the end here. I love the conversation. I think I, I do did learn a lot here. Uh, so thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thanks for sharing your experience, your inspiring story, and. I would like to end by giving you some space to share whatever links. If you want to share the work by Bay Brazil or something, it's your space. You hire, if you're hiring people, whatever you want to do here, that's your space. Thank you. Thank you for that. First of all, thank you for having me. It's It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm a huge fan and you inspire me. Um, in every interaction, Koji, I'm, again, in, just in awe of you as a human and as another design leader. So so thank you. Um, we are hiring. I think we have like 50 or more openings at PayPal, Venmo, Zettel, so all of, all of the brands that are part of the PayPal umbrella. So do go to our job site, check those out. You can also see most of those openings on LinkedIn. Um, and then I'm on Twitter, 
happy to to follow people and and be followed back. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. I've been trying to keep my connections mostly to people that I know. So don't you can always message me, but don't feel bad if we don't connect on LinkedIn. But I'm always always happy to connect on Twitter. Um, you can find me there at Daniela George. Awesome, cool. Well, thank you so much and. Uh, thanks for your time thanks for your dedication for the community for Brazilians and everything you do thank you it was a pleasure my name is Koji and this is Cells and Pixels thanks for listening